This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to discuss a study about the association between stopping long-term stable prescribed opioids and suicide and overdose. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm doing great. How are you doing, John? Oh, fantastic. Just loving this uh, pumpkin spice weather. <laughs> so It's a beautiful fall day, definitely, here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine this week? Two things. First, I just want to tell our listeners that we're going to be doing a new talkback section at the end of each podcast where we will read the best comments that we get about previous episodes. So just a reminder, you can send us your comments on Twitter, on Facebook, or email. If you know us personally, you can just tell us stuff at work. And you can also join our new associated Facebook group and continue the discussion there. So send us your comments, and hopefully we can include them on the podcast. So now, John, in other news, this is something that I read, and it is very relevant to the paper we're going to present today. So there was a recent Supreme Court decision that affects how doctors can be criminally prosecuted if they're prescribing harms patients. The case involved two pill mill doctors. The Supreme Court ruled that doctors had to not just violate accepted standards of medical practice, but to have done so knowingly. Basically, this makes it harder to prosecute doctors criminally for opioid prescribing since you may have to prove that they knew their prescriptions were being abused, not just that their prescriptions were outside standard practice. Now, in this case, the docs were prosecuted not just for harming and killing patients, but for a wide range of charges related to fraud. So I don't think they're going to be getting out of jail. But this case does raise questions for a bunch of pending litigation. I mean, the two doctors in this case, they did some really, truly egregious things like writing prescriptions for patients they never saw, charging, depending on the number of pills in the prescription, and accepting guns as payment for their prescriptions. So I think they got some weapons charges in there, too. But I've heard that this is affecting other cases already of doctors who are facing criminal prosecution for pill mill related charges. So now they're claiming they were just trying to help patients. They were just doing their best. And they didn't know that the patients were abusing their prescriptions. So what do you think? Do you think that a doc should be criminally prosecuted? I mean, this doesn't save you from, say, malpractice or civil liability, but it might save you from criminal liability if you claim that you thought you were doing the best you could. You weren't actually trying to hurt people. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting concept. I mean, I'm going to start by saying that I think the nicest thing I've ever gotten from a patient was a wood box that they made for me out of a a piece of barn wood from their father's barn. And this holds my business cards, but I've never received a weapon or a gun as a payment for anything. So I think already that kind of raises a flag as to intent. But I do think that if you're going to kind of totally disregard standard practices, and you know, this is different than like an amoxicillin prescription for sinusitis on day five. This is really kind of like doing true harm, these medications. And, you know, in some regards, we know that they're illegally diverted and used in illicit ways and they people die from this. So... I think you should be accountable for it personally if you're violating standards of care. Yeah. And, you know, the article I read said, of course, you can still be sued for malpractice. But the question is, should you face criminal charges? I mean, I have a patient who I started working with after getting out of prison and that patient was facing manslaughter charges for having sold someone drugs and that person overdosed and died on the drugs that my patient had sold. So if we're going to criminally prosecute you know, low-level drug dealers who 
sell things that patients die from. I don't see why doctors should be exempt from this. And I would argue even that the you know the low-level user and addict that's selling knows less of the harms than the physician that's prescribing them. I mean, we're trained in this and we all know about the harms. Most of us do several hours per renewal cycle every other year or year, depending upon your state license about opioid mismanagement and opioid like safety practices. So I don't know. I don't think you can claim that you were just trying to do the right thing in some of these cases. Well, that's the thing. You would have to be truly out of it to think that selling prescriptions, you know, charging by the number of pills or receiving a gun in exchange for your prescription was somehow standard of care and you're just trying to help people. Or prescribing for a patient you've never met or seen, right? I mean, what else do you do that for? Would you do that for a urinary tract infection even? Or would you do that for even allergy medication if you've never seen them or had contact with them? It's it's outside the standards of care and, and dangerous. I think what's interesting is some doctors have been very anxious about continuing to prescribe to chronic pain patients. So patients who are on chronic high-dose opiates. And the doctors have been afraid that if something goes wrong, if there's a risk, even if the patient is aware of and accepts that risk, that the doctor could face not just malpractice, but criminal prosecution. And that thought has had a bit of a chilling effect on doctors who might otherwise prescribe high-dose opiates. And some might argue that that's a good thing, that these meds are dangerous and shouldn't be prescribed at all. But I think there have been, and we've talked about in previous episodes, sometimes patients have been taken off their high-dose opioids with no sign that there was anything wrong with the medicine just because of the physician's fear of their own liability. So I think this case speaks to that a little bit. But no, I, I agree with you. It's You'd have to be a really negligent doctor not to know that these things can be dangerous. And, and I would argue from a criminal or a civil suit perspective, if, if you're seeing a patient, you're making contact with them, you inherit a patient that's on high opioids and you're documenting a plan to safely manage those and get them either to an acceptable level or some degree of risk mitigation, I, I think that that's going to be really hard to say that you're putting yourself out there for, for liability, either criminally or from a medical malpractice standpoint. I think that's totally different than, than these scenarios, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's funny, though, how, you know, I, I don't want to rag on our profession, but people's behavior can be pretty bad. You know, I, I review the newsletter from the State Board of Medicine every year before I speak with the residents on safe opioid prescribing. So I look at everybody who got their licenses revoked. And there's some bad doctors in Pennsylvania. I mean, they're not doctors anymore, but they definitely, there's some bad behavior. And these people definitely should not be able to practice medicine, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, there's a, there's a lot of people practicing medicine that have some very questionable episodes as well related to these same things, right? Not everyone loses their license. Oh, it's hard in primary care because I think we're on the intersection of pain management and addiction. We see people who are in chronic pain. We see people who are having issues with addiction. We're kind of expected to treat both, to prescribe opioids and get people off opioids, to prescribe benzos and amphetamines, and then also get people off the benzos and amphetamines. And so we see, I think we see both sides of the story a little different from, say, doctors who are just doing pain management or doctors who are just treating addiction. Yeah. Definitely. So should we get to start talking about this article? Yeah, I really want to hear about it. Can you tell me a little about it, Sonia? Sure. So the title is Comparative Effectiveness of Opioid Tapering or Abrupt Discontinuation versus No Dosage Change for Opioid Overdose or Suicide for Patients Receiving Stable Long-Term Opioid Therapy. Kind of a mouthful. This was published in August 2022 in JAMA Network Open. So a little bit of background. Now, we have talked about this before. 
The CDC released prescribing guidelines in 2016 in response to the opioid overdose epidemic. They recommended a maximum safe dose of 90 morphine milliequivalents daily with dose tapering for those in whom harms outweighed the benefits. This contributed to a significant reduction in opioid prescriptions. However, opioid overdoses continued to increase and most recently topped 100,000 people annually. So more than 100,000 people are dying every year from opioid overdose, even though prescription opioids have gone way down. So given the continued overdose crisis, it's reasonable to ask whether or not this huge effort we made to reduce prescribing has done any good at all. I mean, there may have been even more overdoses if the medical community had continued to prescribe so many opioids, but the massive effort to reduce prescribing did not really turn out to be the solution we had hoped for. So that's problem one. Problem two, what do you do with the patients who were taking these opioids? Many patients who had been maintained by their physicians on chronic high-dose opioids were faced with mandatory dose reductions. There was some thought to the harm that would be caused to these patients, but it was considered negligible compared to the possibility of reducing overdose deaths. The CDC and HHS both did publish guidelines for safe tapering, emphasizing that patients should be monitored closely during that time. But as you know, and as I know, many patients were just cut off. Many of these kind of pill mill or pain management practices just went out of business abruptly. All the patients were cut off from their medication and they could not find any physicians who were willing to take them on. Have you experienced that taking on patients from other doctors who want medications that you don't feel like you can prescribe? I think all of us have had this and at least medicines that you're uncomfortable with. I don't think I've ever had a, a patient where they've walked out of my office where I haven't come up with some sort of a plan, but certainly there are people where you're walking in the room looking at their chart and their med list and your heart starts to like increase and you feel like palpitations because you know it's going to be a, a difficult encounter. Yeah. And I don't blame the patients. You know, I think going through withdrawal and reducing these medications just from everything I've seen is pretty unpleasant. So I don't blame them for being upset or being anxious that the meds can't continue. However, they're so unsafe that, you know, as a doctor, you don't feel like you want to be, have your name kind of on the situation. Yeah, definitely. So if you remember, if you're a regular listener of our podcast, you'll remember in episode three, we reviewed a big study from JAMA Network Open that was published a year ago in August 2021, showing that opioid tapering was associated with both overdoses and mental health crises. That paper examined over 100,000 patients' data from a giant insurance database to see whether there were more hospitalizations for mental health crises and opioid overdose in the time periods after opioid dose was decreased for long-term stable patients. The study showed a significant increase in mental health crises, suicides, and overdoses in these time periods immediately after a dose reduction. As you might imagine, this was extremely concerning to those of us who were tasked with managing and tapering long-term opioids. and has worked its way into some of the popular discussion saying that patients should not be tapered, that you could do more harm than good by tapering patients off their long-term stable opioids. If you remember, though, John, our take on the paper was that there were too many confounding variables to be able to blame the taper itself on the bad outcomes. The biggest problem was that the patients who were tapered were ones who had higher risk of bad outcomes in the first place. So people with mental health disorders with risk factors for opioid use disorder, they were the ones who may have been tapered and they are the ones who are more likely to have adverse outcomes. So it's not necessarily the taper that caused the adverse outcome. It was the demographic of the people who were subjected to taper. 
So there was that confounding factor that just made it hard for me to say that it was the taper itself that caused the mental health crises and the overdoses. So this is another paper to tackle that same question. So again, the question, does tapering or stopping opioids on long-term stable patients lead to harm? But in this study, the authors tried to limit the patients to just those who had no medical reason to taper their opioids and thus account for some of the confounding seen in other papers. All right, you still with me? I'm with you. It's interesting, you, the previous paper you're referencing, you know, we, we've talked about this before. It's been covered um, in many other, you know, podcasts, many other journal clubs. And it's interesting that different people seem to interpret that data, or at least the findings of that relatively qualitative retrospective study differently, you know. I saw it's good to have more evidence kind of mounting here with this paper to let us know, like, really, is there a harm or, or is there just not enough information at this point? Well, and that's the value of doing careful analysis of important papers, because a lot of these big database papers, it's not so easy to actually understand the clinical question. So if you really dig into it and really figure out what's being asked, you can get some insight that you don't get just from reading a one-liner or the sort of official conclusion. So let's start talking about this paper. First off, what is the clinical question? So this paper asked a simple question. For patients on stable, long-term opioids who do not have opioid use disorder or opioid misuse, is dose tapering associated with higher rates of opioid overdose or suicide events? So, you know, pretty simple. Inclusion criteria was adults. This was done over an eight-year period between 2010 and 2018, so pre-COVID. And these were patients receiving long-term opioid therapy and stable, meaning they'd been on six months of a stable prescription. They had to have at least six months of data and a month of follow-up, so a stable in terms of insurance and, you know, being in the system. And they excluded people for whom tapering would have been clinically appropriate, meaning they really had to taper and people for whom tapering would have been clinically totally inappropriate, say on hospice or with an advanced cancer. So they really tried to focus on patients for whom there was no reason to taper other than the presence of the high-dose opioids themselves. So in terms of how they eliminated patients who might have opioid use disorder, they looked at people who had more than three prescribers, more than two early refills, any kind of substance use disorder-related diagnosis, any receipt of medication for opiate use disorder, any admission to substance use treatment, also people with hepatitis C or any injection-related infection were all excluded from this trial. So who was left? We've got 45% men, the mean age was 57, 72% of them were white, and they were from all states in the U.S. because this was another big insurance database study. The baseline morphine mill equivalent was pretty high, So about 40% have between 50 and 90 morphine mill equivalents daily. About 35% have between 90 and 200 morphine mill equivalents daily. And 25% had greater than 200 morphine mill equivalents daily. So that's a lot of opioids. 35% were on benzos. 32% were on a gabapentinoid. About 18% had anxiety and 20% had depression. And they were pretty good. About 60% had a medical comorbidity score of zero. So meaning they're in good health, even though they're on average older patients. So these are relatively healthy, you know, late 50s white patients, many of whom are on very high dose opioids. The intervention was just stable opioid dosage versus tapering versus abrupt discontinuation. And again, this is based on pharmacy fills. And the outcomes were 
whether after either a tapering or an abrupt discontinuation, there was any kind of insurance claim for an overdose or a suicide and not necessarily a completed suicide, a suicide event, meaning a suicide that was not successful or suicidal ideation or admitted to the hospital for suicide concerns. So that's the question. What do you think? I mean, it is interesting. I mean, this is kind of back to like one of these claims database articles. So, you know, it's interesting to see kind of the the association between the three subgroups in addition to, you know, what's been kind of filed, at least as a claim. And is there really like a harm based upon what you're seeing with the claims aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that this is one of the best data sets we have, but I really maybe I'm just tired of reading giant insurance claim database studies. There's so much data, but as the person who has to do the coding, you know, you and I code all day, every day, you, you're you moving at a fast pace. You're just picking whatever code you can find to let you move on with your day. So I really feel there's some limits to how much this truly captures what happened in the clinical encounter. Yeah, I mean, feedback regarding my personal HCC coding is that it could be improved, right? I think, And I think that's the majority. And I think, you know, I do a pretty good job otherwise, but still lots of feedback regarding areas of improvement. So your limitation for for this type of database is your data entry. And I think most physicians, you know, and APPs, I mean, we're all very busy throughout the day. I think that to some extent, kind of what code you're actually entering for some of these is probably the least important aspect of the the visit in some regards. Totally. Except for the prior authorization. Then it's got to be right. Then then it better be the right code. (laughs) It better be right, man. The first time. All right. So is this trial valid? So with the limitations of an insurance database trial in mind, I think that this was a valid trial. So it was very large. It had almost 200,000 patients in the data set, and they created 415,000 qualifying long-term opioid therapy episodes. Of the patients in the study, 87% were stable, 11% tapered, and 1.8% had abrupt discontinuation. And that was significantly different from other studies in this genre. But of course, you shouldn't be surprised because these are all people where they eliminated all kinds of people who had problems with the opioids. So these are very stable patients who have not necessarily demonstrated any kind of problem with their opioid therapy. So of course, 87% of them were kept on a stable dose. There also was very few who actually got cut off with abrupt discontinuation, less than 2%. So that might lead to some imprecision in that subset. The baseline characteristics were relatively similar among the treatment groups. The abrupt discontinuation patients were a little younger and tend to have lower baseline morphine mill equivalents. They tried to adjust for a bunch of confounders. So they adjusted for time, whether you were before or after the release of the 2016 guidelines. They adjusted for geographic region, insurance type, age, sex, race, opioid dose, benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids, depression, anxiety, ADHD. It goes on and on and on and on. So many things they tried to adjust for. However, you can't adjust for everything. There may still be significant unmeasured confounders. And the ones I thought of that I was concerned about was history of opiate use disorder in the past, use of additional drugs where no one put substance use disorder on the chart, use of other sedating medications, specifically sleeping pills, antipsychotics, and any kind of chronic pain. So those are all things that would, I think, would have affected whether or not someone was subjected to a taper or just left alone on their medications. Follow-up was pretty good nine months after the initial intervention, which I think is long enough to see an effect. 
they did do an intention to treat analysis, and they also did some per-protocol analyses and sensitivity analyses. So a bunch of things to try to make sure their conclusions held up in different situations. I thought the conclusions were, although they did a great job clearly identifying their population, I thought they included population was kind of narrowly defined. So basically, they limited the study to the lowest risk patients, and they limited the outcomes to the most severe outcomes. So there's a lot of negative outcomes of opioids that are not suicide or overdose. And, you know, I just know from my own patients, I think of, you know, complications of opioids. We've got intractable constipation. We've got depression. We've got isolation from family, diversion, overdose of a family member within the home, interaction with other medications. So you can't take other meds that might be beneficial. You know, just a whole bunch of things that can happen with opioid meds that are not the most severe outcomes. And finally, it was funded by the CDC and NIDA, so I think funding was unlikely to cause bias. So, John, did you think that this was a valid trial? Yeah, I think it was as valid as one of these kind of insurance database claims can be. I mean, I think it was a a large number. I liked it that I like the fact they narrowed this down. That is kind of somewhat useful because you don't always inherit people with with an issue. So it's kind of interesting to see these kind of low risk people, the ones that we've talked about before, that like you kind of taper because of a number. What does that really do when you could have basically treat them that way or basically taper them solely because of they are on some escalated dose, not because they have these other risk factors that are kind of more imminently concerning to their health? I thought it was interesting. I, I really would love to know like who that that 1.8% was that was just abruptly discontinued. I, I feel like um, either that group, there's there's something missing from the coding here in terms of like a, an X factor as to what makes up that 1.8%. Or it, it's a terrible disservice to a very low risk population. It, it's just that's the group I'm kind of the most intrigued by. I don't know about you. Well, I did think about that. And I also would have loved to know who were the doctors who were prescribing and especially the ones who had patients who discontinued abruptly. I wonder if there was a certain doctor or set of doctors who tapered everybody or who abruptly discontinued everybody by, let's just say, going out of business or being arrested. You know, that happens in our area. We'll have a physician be put out of business overnight by the DEA, and suddenly 500 patients are desperately seeking a prescriber for high-dose opioids. So I, I kind of wondered about that. But hey, well, let's talk about the results, and that will maybe answer that question. So again, just to summarize the question so we're not caught up too much in the details, this asked for stable, low-risk patients on long-term opioid therapy was there an increase in opioid overdose or suicide event, which is the primary outcome, after either taper or abrupt discontinuation? So starting with who were these people, one thing that was very interesting is the abrupt discontinuation people, I maybe would have thought they would be on higher opioids and somehow that would be more risky, but they were actually mostly on lower dose opioids. And I guess that makes sense clinically, like you really don't want to stop someone abruptly if they're on 200 morphine mill equivalents or greater a day. So most of the abrupt discontinuation patients were on the lower end of the prescribing. And that was really the only difference between that group and the other two groups, the taper group and the stable group. They couldn't find any other differences. In terms of the primary outcome, again, overdose event or suicide event, it was higher in the taper group versus the stable group. There was no difference in the discontinuation abruptly group versus the stable group. So I just think that that might be due to a small sample size. So again, the taper group versus the stable, 
dose group, there was an absolute difference of 0.15%, so pretty small in the primary outcome of opiate overdose or suicide. So just to get a sense of the absolute numbers, in the taper group, it was 1.1% had this primary outcome. And in the stable group, it was 0.96% had this outcome. So not a huge difference, statistically significant, but not a huge clinical difference. If you broke it down, all of that was driven by suicide events. And so again, not necessarily completed suicides, just suicide events, as in admitted for suicidal ideation or attempted suicide. So the overdoses were not different between any of the three groups, only the suicide. And there was a difference between the taper group versus the stable group. The results were very stable in all the different sensitivity analyses and per protocol analyses. Another thing that that makes me think there is not so much a connection is the lack of what we would call a dose response finding. So you'd think if a taper led to more overdoses or suicide events, then an abrupt discontinuation would lead to even more than that. But that finding was not present. Another interesting thing I thought was that there was no more increase in tapering after the release of the 2016 guidelines. So the doctors in this study, at least for these stable low-risk patients, those guidelines did not influence whether or not they tapered patients. So in conclusion, opioid tapering in stable, low-risk patients was associated with a small, absolute increased risk of overdose and suicide events compared with stable dosing. Opioid tapering of stable patients did not show a protective effect against overdose because they didn't ask that as the primary question. But of course, the reason we're tapering these people is because we're afraid they're going to die from opioid overdose. And so the people who are left on their medicine, they did not have an increased risk of overdose either. So John, what do you think? I thought it was really interesting. I mean, I think I'm not sure how much I'm ready to take away just yet from this, but I think it probably says, I think what we've all kind of been feeling with our kind of gut, that there probably is a slight harm from a taper. Although, you know, as we talked about, there's really, you're looking at this only kind of from a one-tail distribution. You're not looking at the other side of this, like what's the benefits of also tapering? Like, was there a net benefit of improvement? You talked about kind of like social isolation, constipation. I would also think of things like, you know, hypogonadism, hyperalgesia. I, I see these very commonly in the clinic. You know, I, I would like to see everything we do has some harms and some benefits. Really, what is the, the seesaw here? Another interesting thing was the guidelines, right? I, like in, in primary care, I feel like we everyone loves their guidelines, right? I think everyone talks about how like the, you know, every time they update the guidelines, everyone changes their practice very drastically. I think for most people that have read them. So the fact that it made no change here, I, I thought that was interesting. Well, I thought that was really interesting too. It made me think that maybe the, the publishing of those guidelines gave doctors an excuse to taper patients who were higher risk. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's true? I don't know, but I do feel like in my work with a lot of different doctors and helping doctors who have complex opioid patients, I feel like often the doctor knows that the situation is not great and is just looking for a reason to stop the opioids. And so that's why people get all bent out of shape about relatively minor violations of a controlled substance agreement or these guidelines. They're just, they're just so relieved to find a reason that in their mind is un- inarguable to take the patient off their medication. I mean, I have seen that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that a lot of times it's, this is used kind of as uh, sort of like evidence for why they want to do what they want to do. One of my teachers told me that. He says the guidelines just basically give back up to let you do what you want to do and give you some kind of like credence behind that. That wasn't about opioids. He was talking about like pediatrics, but it's interesting that he felt that way. And I think a lot of people do. 
Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to denigrate doctors because, again, I am a primary care doctor and I definitely have have my share of struggles with opioids. And it really just is such a difficult issue in primary care. It cannot be boiled down to sort of chronic pain patients versus addiction patients versus doctors. It's it's very complex. And I really do believe the medical community did a lot of harm with our opioid prescribing. I mean, I certainly saw a lot of patients who were harmed by it. And I've seen a lot of patients who are better off their opiates. So, you know, I really do think tapering has benefited many of my patients. But a lot of them, you know, if they're stable, they just are okay to stay on the medicine. The patient themselves would prefer it. So at least this study showed that they didn't have a higher risk of overdose. If a patient does want to stay on their long-term high-risk opioids, they're not really at high risk for opioid overdose, at least for 11 months. So the final question I always ask is, will the results help me in patient care? So I think my patients were similar to those in this study. I do do opioid tapering. I personally have very few patients left on long-term opiate therapy. I think I have two who I prescribe what I would consider high-dose opioids to, and both of them are under 90 morphine milliequivalents a day. The outcomes are clinically relevant, although only the most severe. So in terms of benefits, they didn't show any benefits to tapering or abrupt discontinuation. In terms of harms, they showed a slightly increased risk of suicide events with tapering. So the number needed to harm, which I calculated, so this is the number of patients on stable long-term opiate therapy who would have to not be tapered, a little double negative here, not be tapered to prevent a suicide event, including suicidal ideation, would have to be 667. So if you take 667 stable patients off their chronic opiates, you would have one additional suicide event. So not a lot. You can't claim that tapering people is causing huge amounts of harm in that setting. So I don't really think I can draw any conclusions about the benefits versus the harms of tapering based on this study, because as we said, only the most severe outcomes were considered and not any of the myriad other benefits or harms that patients might experience. So in conclusion, this study does show a slight increase in suicide events with opioid tapering in stable long-term opioid patients without any red flags for opioid misuse or risk factors for suicide or opiate use disorder. However, it was limited to very low-risk patients and very severe outcomes. They also did not show a dose response, and that calls into question for me the validity of the conclusions. So I don't think it's going to change my practice. As I said, at this point, I don't have that many patients on stable long-term opiate therapy. I do occasionally get new patients coming to me on high-dose opioids, and I always, always, always try to taper them because I just see harms that the patients may not even realize. I always encourage people to taper. And even if the patient themselves is willing to accept the risk of adverse outcomes, I personally am not necessarily willing to accept the risk with them. You know, this is the only area where doctors somehow feel pressured. If the patient says, I don't care if it might kill me, I still want to do it. And we're somehow pressured to say, okay, sure, let's do it. So I don't necessarily think this is going to change my practice. How about you? I think it's it's not going to change my practice. I think it's, like I said, I think it's minimal harm is what it sounds like, at least from this study. I think there's no assessment of the benefits. You know, I, I like that number, 600 and what was the number again? I think 667. That's a lot of opioids to prevent one person kind of going to the to the ER with a suicidal ideation. I, I don't know. I think that probably at least my gestalt is that benefits and, and select cases of tapering at high doses probably do outweigh the harms. Yeah, I would agree. But and I'm really glad though, even though the results are kind of 
you know, negative, didn't show a dramatic thing that we can somehow use to change our practice every day. I'm still really glad we looked at it because this is just such an important question. And I think the authors did a really good job clearly defining their question. Well, thanks for presenting that, Tanya. That was awesome. It was a pleasure. Are you ready for our talk back? Yeah, let's hear it. So I have two comments. The first one, and they're both about episode four for our listeners. Episode four reviewed an article about the benefits of quitting smoking after a lung cancer diagnosis. So we got a comment on Twitter, actually from the author of the paper, Dr. Mahdi Sheikh. He's on Twitter at Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I underscore I-A-R-C, who said, enjoyed listening to this critical review of our work by Addiction Med JC. I found it very professional, describing strengths and limitations, raising logical concerns, and explaining the impact on medical practice and cancer community. Thanks, Sonia Del Tredici and John Keenan. So thank you, Dr. Sheikh, for being a listener. And if any authors out there want to weigh in on our interpretation of their work, we would love to hear what you think. Our second comment, a little less complimentary, but still interesting. We got a comment on this episode from a listener, Jocelyn Swigger, who said, As a non-medical person, I thought it was odd that you and John were so surprised that quitting smoking prevented lung cancer deaths. Doesn't it even say that on the cigarette package? I thought everybody already knew that. So great point, Professor Swigger. Maybe we were a little too impressed by this fact that apparently everybody already knows, even if they're not a doctor. You know what? I'm going to throw this out here. Maybe this is just the community as a whole. I have uh, quizzed the residents several times about it with patients recently with lung cancer diagnosis, if we're going to talk to them about smoking cessation. And I've yet to have a physician in training tell me that we should probably talk with them about that. So I think it's probably a pretty pervasive feeling, but you're right. You know, it does make sense. It's right there on the label. That's right. Smoking cigarettes will make you die from lung cancer. Even if you have lung cancer. Even if you have lung cancer, smoking cigarettes will still make you die even more from lung cancer. I appreciate that feedback. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com, talk to us on Twitter and Facebook at addictionmedjc, or join our Facebook group. Original theme music composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.